This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, so you don't have to worry about monthly hosting fees. It has built-in creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Or you can record and edit using your favorite audio recording software and upload it straight to Anchor. Anchor will also distribute your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Pocket Casts. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and Anchor will even match you with advertisers as your audience grows. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, Anchor is a pretty great place to start. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H. OR.FM to get started. Hi, you're listening to Two Weebs in a Trench Coat. I'm Suzanne. I'm Madison. Welcome to Mom Said It's My Turn to Host the Podcast. Um, <laughs> today, we're going to be talking about Junji Ito. So, Yay. Suzanne, what do you know about uh, manga artist uh, and writer Junji Ito? Um, my only, the only things I know is that he wrote a bunch of horror comics. I've read Uzumaki. I read it in college and it freaked me out. And... Uh, he's also the guy who wrote the, I think, Amigura Fault that everyone was like, everyone memed the heck out of. Yep. This a while is back. my hole. It was made <laughs> for me. That even, like, Steven Universe parodied. Uh huh. <laughs> um, and also that he writes horror manga but is very afraid of his cats for some reason. Yes. Oh my god. I love his cats. They're very good. Uh,. The one with the skull on it, uh, Yon, actually actually has a skull marking on it in real life. That's not just oh a God. joke he made for for the manga to be more spooky. Like the way that the patterns on on Yon's back look, it actually looks like a skull. That's kind of intense. Yeah, and perfect for Junji Ito. Um, mm-hmm. So to get started, I'm gonna lift off, list off my sources: um, Wikipedia, Nightfire Books. Uh, CBR.com, 840, uh, Yadatachi.com, Sabukaru Online, The Artifice, IGN, Grapi.jp, and the BornHeist.wordpress. So getting started. Junji Ito was born in July in 1963 in uh, Sakashita, which is now a part of Nakasugawa Gifu. Hopefully I said that right. <laughs> Please, I'm going to give a standing apology to anyone who speaks Japanese or is from Japan. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fun fact about Sakashita, it was a town located in Ina district in Gifu. But um, as of 2005, it was subsumed with a bunch of other small towns and villages in the Ina district into the expanded city of uh, Nakasugawa. And so that small town does not exist as an independent uh, municipality anymore. Where is that in terms of, like, north, south? 
let's let's do the easy way for most Americans. Where is Gifu <laughs> uh, related to Tokyo? It is in between Tokyo and Kyoto. Mm. So it is, okay. uh, it's sort of in the southern area. It's uh, 380 kilometers from Tokyo. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's sort of in the middle of Tokyo towards mm-hmm. the, the coast. Because it's, it's also next to uh, Chibia on the little peninsula. I say, oh, okay. Like, I know where yeah. anything other than Tokyo and Kyoto are. Yeah, and like Osaka. Because <laughs> we're... <laughs> painfully western um so junji ito uh because he was born in in 1963 um japan was very different than what foreigners would know it as now um so Mm -hmm. he grew up in the countryside in a in a very small city next to nagano apparently in the house where he lived the the bathroom was at the end of an underground underground tunnel and it was infested with spider crickets Oh, no. Which is horrifying. He's been quoted as saying, I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself, especially since the bathroom in my house was at the end of an underground tunnel. In my house, when you went down the tunnel, we had a storage shed there with an earthen floor. Today, the foundation would have been concrete, but in those days, it was exposed earth. And spider crickets would often be there. They look like crickets. We used to call them toilet crickets because they often showed up in countryside toilets. They've spotted bodies, rounded backs, and very long legs, which they would jump all over the place with as soon as you got near them. They really frightened me. Um, and that's actually a theme of, like, crickets and bugs show up in, in a couple of his works, too. So it, it definitely mm. did have an influence on him. Um, yeah, I can imagine having to go to the bathroom tunnel oh. would have an impact on you. Come on, children, time to go to the bathroom tunnel. That's so <laughs> scary. And I mean, for us, it's kind of scary and weird. But of course, in uh, in small villages in Japan at the time, that was probably the norm, especially the mm-hmm. further you were in the countryside. So he started drawing around the ages of four and five when his older sisters um, had shown him different, different kinds of manga and had gotten him into reading them and stuff. Uh, he first began actually seriously writing and drawing manga himself as a hobby while he was working as a dental technician in uh, 1984. As a dental technician? Uh Uh-huh. He started as a dental technician. So during the first early part of his life, it was more or less just for fun and because he was interested in it as a kid. And then he ended up turning it into a hobby and in 1987, he submitted a short story to Gekan Halloween uh, that won an honorable mention in the uh, Kazuo Umezu Prize with uh, the with Umezu, the guy who is named after the prize is named after as one of the judges himself. Um, oh damn! And the story was actually later serialized as Tomie. Hmm. Uh, he married Ayako Ishiguru Eiko uh, in 2006, and as of 2013, they have two daughters, actually. Cute. Yeah. So there's actually not a whole lot about the man online uh, in terms of personal life beyond the sort of same couple of things that he said in, in multiple interviews, but 
that's pretty normal. I feel like a lot of mangaka are very, very, very private people and don't like having their personal information out there. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many mangaka, like, I think the uh, mangaka for either D. Greyman or Fullmetal Alchemist, people assumed she was a man because she uh-huh. did not show up for any sort of public thing until, yeah. like, halfway through the run of FMA. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that she was a lady until one of those little side, like, little comics in the actual manga where she drew herself with an alchemy circle and her little cow, Sona, with an alchemy circle and then smacking it and a baby appearing, and that's how she announced to everyone <laughs> that she had had a child. <laughs> that's amazing. She's amazing. I can't wait until we do the, the Full Metal Alchemist episode. Um because uh-huh. of course we we have to. Um, but she she's very funny. Uh, but yeah, at least a lot of the the mangaka that I know of, um, especially in the early two thousands, or if they were born before a certain point, it seems like they are still very private people. Both the Death Note author and the Death Note artist both work under uh, pseudonyms, mm. and I don't think anyone knows who they are either. So he works under his real name. But he's definitely like a very a very quiet private man. Mm-hmm. Technically, his first manga ever, his first one shot was in 1987, um, and he has been nonstop working since then. And I'm about to tell you the list of his work, which was actually very difficult to find the chronological order of um, because a lot of it has not been published in the West. Originally, Dark Horse had the publishing license to a couple of, like, his um, issues of, like, multiple ones. Mm-hmm. I always forget the actual name for it. Is it Tankoban? Yeah, I think, like, the actual Tankoban, where here it would just be, like, a collection or an anthology, because the stories aren't related. Unfortunately, for a couple of the actual collections, the licensing was only ever for, like, the first two or three volumes in each series, and then... Some of these were 16 volumes long, and they were they were never originally fully published in the West, but especially America. So to start off, he has a bunch of one-shots and specials, which also don't have dates because they were published in various magazines uh, spanning anywhere between 2000 and 2017. One of his most famous ones from his one-shots would be his... Uh, his version of the human chair, which is a horrifying story. I don't actually know the original. The The only version of, of the human chair that I've ever seen is his. And it's just, it's this lady and she's got a nice chair and she sits in it all the time. And then eventually it's, it's found out that the dude who made it was actually like in the chair the whole time being sat on and the police came and were looking for him. And they opened the chair, and there was, like, a human-shaped just fucking hole in it. No, I don't like that. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. Is that, like, because it sounds familiar, is that a, like, a famous story? Yes. Or is it kind of, like, like, did someone write it, and we know who wrote it? Or is it, like... Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, I've never read the original, but it is a short story written by a Japanese author, uh, Irogawa Ranpo. It was published in 1925, originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was made as a movie in 1997. Junji Ito's version is a sequel in which the ending is a little bit reimagined. I could not tell you what the original one is because I have not read it. 
Uh, yeah, I haven't read it either, and I don't know if it's translated. I feel like it should be, because Edgar Rampo is, like, Japan's Arthur Conan Doyle. Like, he's a very famous... Yeah. Um, I think mystery author. Um, he's, like, part of Detective Conan. Like, his... The reason why he's called Edgar Conan is because... He took his name from Edgar Rampo and Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh my god. <laughs> I did not know that. That's amazing. Um, but you were talking about uh, one of the most famous stories he wrote was this adaption of The Human Chair. Yeah, it's 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 one that as far as his, his one-shots go, or his specials um, that were only in magazines, is, is one of the most uh, well-known ones. Because it, it has been at least fan-translated into English. And there's other ones such as uh, Demon's Voice, and apparently he did a version of Snow White once. Oh boy. Yeah. But out of this list of like a few of them, I've only ever read or seen Human Chair. Mm-hmm. And so his actual volumes start with the Horror World of Junji Ito collection, which is a 16 volume series. Volume 1 and 2 are the republished uh, Tomie stories and the actual series. Volumes mm-hmm. 5 and 6 are Suichi? Maybe? <laughs> stories. Uh, the rest are standalone short stories collected from the various ma- magazine publications. Um, so if you wanted to read those ones, uh, good luck. <laughs> uh, anything past volume 3 has not been translated into English officially, as far as I could tell. Um, you'll, you could probably find Fran translations at this point, but, uh, volume 16 from 2014 actually was a retelling, uh, version of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Um, so he's actually done a couple of Western fairy tales and, like, stories and, and, and repenned them as, as manga in his collections, Mm. which is pretty cool. But I honestly, I prefer his original stuff. It's... I like his original stuff better. Um, yeah, there are a couple on that list that I d- did not know existed. Like, Volume 7, Slug Girl, is familiar to me, because uh, it's horrifying. <laughs> but, like, Volume 12, The Bully, I don't know what that is. I don't think I've ever seen any of the stories in that one. Mm-hmm. Those span from 1997 to 2014, the, the horror world of, of Junji Ito. Uh, That is probably his longest spanning series, even though I think it ends at 16 and it is no longer, like, published as a series. If there's a a new collection, it's it's called something different. Um, Uzumaki came out in uh, 1998, and Gyo, his other one, (laughs) with the fish and the legs, uh, came out in 2001 and also included two bonus stories. The Sad Tale of the Principal Post, and The Enigma of Amagara Fault. So, 2001 is when everyone's favorite, everyone's favorite meme came out. <laughs> Museum of Terror, which is where I believe I first uh, read him, because the first two volumes, again, were published in English. And these were the ones that were at the um, very small comic book store that I used to go to um, where I lived growing up around middle school, which I talked about in episode zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had the actual uh, Museum of Terror volumes. This came out in 2002 and was 10 volumes collected uh, from a magazine, which was apparently a girl's magazine called Halloween. Okay. Um, 
I mean, awesome. I want to find it. I want to read it. Was it spooky all the time? Or did Junji Ito just write horrifying stories for this shoujo magazine? We don't know. I don't know. I tried to look. Uh, Google was very unhelpful in this regard. It'd be very funny if it was just a bunch of, like, cute romance stories and then... (laughs) Junji Ito? (laughs) God. Well, apparently, um, the girls who were reading uh this magazine Halloween actually really liked the Tomie series and had and a lot of them had sent letters to Junji Ito about how much they liked Tomie and like wanted to to be her, which is not the greatest thing <laughs> considering. Um so volumes one and two uh again were all Tomie. Volume three was The Long Hair in the Attic, which sounds familiar but I don't think I've ever read it. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them have not been translated to English, and I'm not going to try to pronounce them because I'm sure I've already embarrassed myself uh, enough with attempting to pronounce Japanese. There are 10 volumes here. The last one came out in 2003, actually. So it was a much shorter run. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has a lot of just actual standalone works. Mimi's Ghost Stories came out in 2003. Hellstar... Remina came out in 2005. Voices in the Dark, 2007. New Voices in the Dark, also in 2007. One of his most famous works, Junji Ito's Cat Diary, <laughs> came out in 2009. Um, Yan is, again, the white cat with the skull-like markings, and Moo Mew is the fluffy Norwegian forest cat. And that's about uh, his wife and his cat's and how he is terribly haunted by these <laughs> new entities that have moved into his home. Um, all done in his traditional, very eerie style. But he, he apparently does love the cats very much. Um, mm-hmm. And everything is actually fine. But it's... If you're not into his more horror-centric or, or body horror works, I would at least read The Cat Diary, because it's very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2009, he also came out with Black Paradox, Rasputin the Patriot in 2010. Interesting. Could not tell you what that's about. Uh, Fragments of Horror in 2015, Dissolving Classroom 2017, Shiver also in 2017. Uh, quick content warning for Shiver. I have not read it, but if you have trypophobia... It's apparently pretty rough, uh, so just be careful if you're going to try and find any of these. I've seen some screenshots of, of Shiver, and it's apparently got some pretty bad trypophobia stuff. Smashed is a collection that came out in 2019. Sensor also came out in 2019. And his latest one, No Longer Human, came out in 2020. So he has a very long body of work starting from uh, the 80s. He's been he's been chugging along. It's interesting because I always thought that he, I mean, I guess he has been kind of well known for a while now. But I always assumed that he started being more well known in the '80s, and it's more in the 2000s that he started publishing more. And then much later in the 2010s, when because those later titles are much more familiar to me, I think mm-hmm. because they're the ones that have actually gotten official English translations now. Yeah, um, like, you can absolutely tell on Wikipedia which ones have sort of gotten translations, because they usually have links, Yeah, <laughs> and you can you can see what they are um, on other pages. I hope that someone picks up the license and gets, like, the rest of the, the volumes of, like, 
the horror world of Junji Ito translated because I would love to read the rest of those. Mm-hmm. As much as I love fan translations, sometimes they can be. Uh, <laughs> they can be. They can sure. It sure is a free medium. Um, I say as someone who couldn't even attempt to translate anything. So it's kind of like um, getting your music off of LimeWire. Like you're gonna get a kind of oh, shitty God. quality, probably, but it's free. Oh, just like Tumblr sure is a free website. <laughs> You put up with a lot for free. Um, but unfortunately, in this case, it's like a lot of fans on the, in the West would like love to actually support these authors. But for whatever reason, the publishing houses and companies just aren't picking up the licenses and bringing them over, mm-hmm. which really sucks. Because um, I don't like want to, to steal his work to read it, but I would I want to give the man my money. Yeah, I assume it has something to do with they only have a limited number of licenses they can afford and they probably want to prioritize stuff that is up and coming than going back and doing older stuff but i think they could definitely stand to still make a lot of money if they publish the older stuff because he's so well known in the west now yeah like i wish dark horse specifically would would pick up their license again and at least finish off those series Mm. makes me sad Next, I'm going to go into uh, what his inspirations are on his work. Um, Aside from the horror bathroom tunnel? Besides the horror (laughs) bathroom tunnel, um, yes. (laughs) Uh, Tomie was actually inspired by uh, the death of a classmate when he was younger. Mm. Uh, He apparently felt strange that a boy he knew had just disappeared and like no matter what was just never gonna show up again even though he kept expecting like this this classmate to to come back so that that transformed into the idea of a girl who was supposed to have died but then just shows up as if nothing had happened Mm. uh which is is what tomie is is sort of about there's a lot more about tomie um that i i'll go into it a little bit later uh Gyo was influenced by his anti-war feelings, uh, which developed when he was a child because of his parents' tragic and frightening war stories. He was born in the 60s, so his parents would have been around and alive in the middle of World War II. What you'll find with a lot of older horror mangaka in uh, in Japan is a lot of their their stuff do have a lot of of theming around being scared of of war or or hating it. Um, just frightening and tragic war stories from from a whole lot of them because either they themselves were alive for World War II or uh, their their parents were. I think a little outside of horror too because Miyazaki has some of it. Um, I haven't actually seen a whole lot of Ghibli, but I know in Howl's Moving Castle, there Howl has one door that just opens up into this warscape, which isn't in the original book at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there is definitely that kind of like World War Two aftermath trauma. Yeah, World War Two was definitely a big influence on a lot of older mangaka and also like anime artists and authors. Because um, also Ghibli has Grave of the Fireflies, which is yep. traumatizing and you should not show it to a classroom full of children in history class before adequately warning them what they're about to watch. Oh no. Um... So I was maybe an, an out 
liar in my my class because I I did like research history and stuff on my own time, not just in class. I actually enjoy history very much. Uh, but the gut punch of Grave and the Fireflies is rough. Mm. Um, I think there was not a dry eye in the classroom that day. Uh, and it, and it did. It, so if you're gonna show it in a history classroom, tell your kids what they're gonna see. Because it's important. It is an important humanizing piece of what happened on Japan's side during World War II. But, like, show it to them, but you gotta tell them what's gonna happen. It's fucking rough. I have not been able to watch it again. Oh, wow. As much as I'm going to talk about horror and guru and all of that during this, one of my main squicks, like, the one thing I can't watch or or visually see is child death. Like, it's the one thing that freaks me out. That's fair. Weirdly enough, though, like, some of my favorite movies are Saw or the Saw series. Um, but I couldn't watch the original Pet Cemetery, mm. like, past the point where the kid gets hit by the truck. Uh, don't know what that's about. <laughs> but. <laughs> and then I'll read everything that I can from Junji Ito when it's all disgusting body horror. So, um,. It's interesting the things that that influence what we can and can't deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, So lastly, from one of his short stories, The Hanging Balloons, which is also very horrifying. Um, These balloons come into this tiny village town and they have the faces of the villagers. Mm. And they seek the villagers out with their faces and snap them up with their weird prehensile string tail and hang them okay this was apparently a childhood dream he had or at least based on a childhood dream he had i don't know what the fuck (laughs) that could have been the hanging balloons is also a very good short story if you can find it to show off his like very subtle eeriness Mm -hmm. without too much of the body horror but in addition to kazuo umizu Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. I am so sorry. Uh, Ito has also cited uh, Hideshi Hino, uh, Shinichi Koga, Yatsutaka Tsutsi? Maybe? Hopefully? Tsutsi? I think. I'm so sorry. Uh, And H.P. Lovecraft uh, as being major influence on his work. Um, Kazuo was born in 1936. He had his first manga published while he was still in high school mm. and uh, made manga his career immediately upon graduation. Since uh, he has been working, has published comics in every genre from horror to science fiction to humor. Uh, and he is most well known for his 1974 work, The Drifting Classroom, which is a, a manga about a school and its inhabitants that are transparent to a post-apocalyptic future and how all of the inhabitants that are trapped in the school sort of deal with that. Mm. Most of them are like middle school children, so it is very dark. Oh boy. But it, as far as horror manga go, it is a, a well-loved and well-talked about like classic horror manga. Mm. Hideshi Hino was born in 1946 in Chichihar, which is in China. Mm. Uh, to Japanese immigrant workers. They uh, moved back to Japan when Japan surrendered at the end of World War II to the invading Soviet forces. So 
Hino has claimed that he was nearly killed en route to Japan by some of his fellow townspeople during the evacuation from China, where his entire um, village or or group that he was in his community were like, we're going to go back to Japan because we don't want to be caught here. Um, but a lot of his manga has been based off of the events of his life. Uh, for example, his grandfather was a Yakuza. His father used to be a pig farmer with a spider tattoo on his back, uh, which has featured in some of his work. Probably his most well-known work would be, um, at least to the West, would be Panorama of Hell, which is a 1984 one-shot, which is about an artist describing his work consisting of hellish views uh, that he paints using his own blood. Okay. <laughs> and then he introduces the reader to his unconventional family, tells stories about his abusive parents who escaped from Manchuria after World War II, and his violent childhood. Eventually, the manga ends with his plan to paint a final masterpiece, which is a full-scale hell on Earth. So he is a deeply troubled man who had a very rough start in childhood, but is a very well-known um, horror mangaka in uh, Japan. Uh, Shinichi Koga was born in 1936. Again, what you'll notice with a lot of these guys is that they were born World War II, like I was saying earlier. Um, he started his horror manga career in 1958 in Tokyo as an author of 46 series. Oh, wow. He's unfortunately um, the only one on this list who has passed away. He died at, um, at 81 from an unspecified disease in 2018. And he is, his most famous work was Echo Echo As... Ooh, as... Ah... Uh, nope. I'm just going to say Echo, 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 Echo. Not even going to try. <laughs> it is about a student named Misa, uh, who is a star student and idol of the classroom. However, she is a young witch who goes from school to school using black magic and able to, in order to enact chaotic and brutal justice. Nice. Which sounds kind of amazing. Let me try one more time. Echo, Echo. As. Areku. Okay. That's, prob that's probably some form of right. <laughs> I may actually check that one out because it sounds really interesting. And it is, um, it's an older series. So it's got like the sort of 50s, 60s, early 70s ma manga style, which I, I very much love. Um, Yasutaka was born again in 1934 in Osaka. Um, he is not a ka, but he is a novelist and a science fiction author and also actor. Hmm. Uh, in Japan. He won the uh, Tanizaki Prize in 1987, which is one of Japan's most sought-after literary awards and was established in 1965. He is most well-known for um, doing satire about Japanese taboos such as disabilities and the imperial family uh, deno system in Japan. And has been victim to, to much criticism as a result, which is not unsurprising. And probably something that he would be uh, the most well-known for in the West is uh, Paprika oh. from 1993. Not the actual movie, but the novel it was based on. Mm, yeah. Um, that is actually his work. Paprika, which, well, is the movie inspired um, Inception, I think. Yeah, uh, Paprika was uh, was an influence on a lot of things. Definitely Inception. Uh, it is a very trippy movie. It's it's not it's not safe for work. It's not kid friendly. 
It's definitely an interesting watch, though, and um, anyone who who is sort of interested in um, in the more esoteric part of anime and should should give it a watch. It's more along the lines of like um, Perfect Blue, which is also an animated psychological sort of weird weird esoteric anime movie. Um, Paprika is definitely a lot more colorful and fun <laughs> than Deep Blue. <laughs> Than Perfect Blue. Um, finally, his last stated influence on his work is H.P. Lovecraft, who is most well known for the Cthulhu mythos and being so racist, even other racists at the time were like, dude, take it down a fucking notch. You're making us look bad and we're normal racist for the time period. No, I will not tell you what he named his cat. You can go look it up yourself. The internet exists. I'm, we're not naming his cat on an audio podcast. Thank you. Uh, he was really racist and was scared of literally anyone who wasn't himself. Um, which features in a lot of his work where he others, other human people because of minor differences. Um, like he was a good author, but he was also really racist. And I hate that he's sort of touted as this like end all be all for like science fiction, cosmic horror when we have so many better, authors at this who point. didn't name their cats slurs uh uh-huh. who didn't name their cats <laughs> slurs exactly anyway whenever i meet people who don't like look at, at lovecraft critically um <laughs> i sort of immediately i'm like i don't trust you so most of most of junji's influences are are primarily japanese um because he grew up reading a lot of these these older manga from these older mangaka artists um, who were around since World War II. Um, which, like, in peak sibling energy, his older sisters showed him all of this horror manga. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I'm the older sibling. I'd probably do that, too. If my brother had any interest in horror stuff, he doesn't. Um, I got all of it for whatever reason. He just plays Call of Duty. Uh, no, he doesn't play Call of Duty. He plays CSGO. And I, whenever I see him playing, I ask him, hey, is that Fortnite? <laughs> <laughs> Which he absolutely loves. So, whew, Junji Ito has a, a lot of themes that he explores in his work. But primarily a lot of what he, he usually goes with for a theme and what he usually even talks about in interviews is that he writes about what scares him for for a lot of it like in go he's terrified of sharks and this is my favorite story about uh junji ito actually so he's terrified of sharks which he has said on multiple occasions and this is a quote from him the way i work is that an image or an idea will appear in my mind And then I will expand that into a little nugget of weirdness. Then after the fact, the ideals will get slapped on. So with Gyo, it wasn't that I was writing about environmental things. When I said that sharks are scary, and the thing about sharks is that if you don't go into the ocean, they're not scary. But what if they came on to land? Oh no. (laughs) So his, his original inspiration for Gyo was... Sharks are scary, but they're only in the water, so you don't have to worry about it. But what if they came out of the water? (laughs) 
Um, and I'm pretty sure Gyo is also one of the more memeable ones, too. Like, if you see, uh, there's, like, a panel where two people are in, like, I guess a ship or something, and then a shark slams through a door. <laughs> like, I'm, pre- th- I'm pretty sure that's from Gyo. Again, he has been quoted as saying um, that one of his biggest fears is that he is war. And he said, I know that it's not an exciting reply, but in the end, it all boils down to a fear of death. Also, when mysteries hint at death, situations where I fear there is impending danger, where something unknown lurks ahead, things that heighten my insecurity. And then the cricket spiders I talked about earlier. (laughs) Or centipedes, millipedes, and cockroaches. They frighten me too. So, a very, honestly, very normal fears. Cosmic horror and bugs. Like, it's actually, despite his work being incredibly eerie and unsettling, like, he's actually afraid of very normal things. It's cool that he can take stuff that's mundane and find the horror in it. Yeah. Uh, that's actually his his biggest thing is sort of the the mundane and and, and finding horror in it. Um, the universes that he creates in his stories are usually very cruel and uh, capricious. Um, the characters are victims of malevolent unnatural circumstances for literally no discernible reason. And usually punished for uh, minor infractions way out of proportion. Um, so he focuses on what it means to be human in extreme circumstances. Um, his stories are usually full of monsters. And a lot of the time are monsters born out of um, people who who lost their humanity. Like in Uzumaki and Gyo. Uzumaki specifically. He has been quoted as saying, For him, it is the human who has the potential to make the most fear, either physically, whether by his actions or his psyche. There are plenty of parts of the human that can be scary, and my goal is to use the human to try and scare readers as much as possible. Which he does very well. Yep. Some of the other uh, themes that you can see in his work a lot of the time are... Jealousy, envy, body horror, um, compulsions, the breakdown of society, deep sea organisms, because the ocean's weird, which is fair. The inevitability of your own demise. (laughs) (laughs) The power of love or desire. Love, lust, and wanting something or someone are pretty powerful driving forces in his stories. Um, These feature a lot in Tomie, which... So I've talked about Tomie, but I haven't talked about Tomie. Tomie is about a girl named Tomie. She's incredibly beautiful. Um, She's got sort of that Heather's mean girl vibe. And in the original novel, one day she is uh, brutally murdered, but then comes back. And that's where things sort of get incredibly strange, incredibly eerie. That's where... um, she sort of gets even more violent and cruel and her her presence drives men specifically to violence and obsession mm-hmm. towards each other, but usually towards her, which is kind of heartbreaking. She dies many, 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 many times throughout the work, um, but always comes back. 
and I'm not going to spoil the actual twist of the twist of the manga, which is my favorite part of it. But Tomie and specifically deals with sort of it's an examination of of lingering guilt consequence consequences, jealousy and fatal attraction. At least the first volume is through the eyes of one of her classmates, uh, of who thought her of herself as a friend and like went through the horror of seeing this classmate murdered and then coming back and acting like nothing was wrong. The first Tomie story is a little more human and humanizing of Tomie. And when you get to the the, the further uh, volumes and chapters, that's where it gets a little more horror, a little more science fiction-y. But Tomie is definitely one of my favorite series for that reason, just because it's so bonkers. And it was also the one that was published in, like, the girls' magazine called Halloween. <laughs> Uh, which I didn't actually know before researching, but I think that's really cool. So he also, besides his work being about what it means to be human in extreme circumstances, it does have a lot of themes of cosmic horror, uh, the paranormal, the unknown. He grew up watching Dracula and Frankenstein on TV when he was when he was very young. Because uh, he lived in the countryside, there weren't any movie theaters nearby, so he could only watch movies when they showed up on TV. The 70s came around and the occult boom happened. He saw things like The Exorcist on TV and the original Suspiria, which is crazy to think that that showed on TV in Japan. Yeah. Because, like, The Exorcist, by today's standards, is, like... Yeah. There's worse, but, like, it's still a pretty dark movie. Back then, uh, there were protests against it. Uh, yeah, the religious mob came out. It came at it in full force. There are still creepy pasta and rumors and theories about the set being haunted because of all of the um, deaths surrounding the film before and after. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, but stuff like The Exorcist and Suspiria, he likes. Well, at least. Suspiria. The Exorcist is is more is more hardcore horror, but sus- things like Suspiria are like horror, but not exactly. They're more like reality, but a step to the left, mm. which I can understand. Um, I do very much like the uncanny valley, the liminal spaces where things are just slightly off too. Mm. But he is strongly drawn to the paranormal phenomena. He has been recorded as saying as well. Which, which is funny because in a lot of his most well-known work, none of it is actually would be qualified as paranormal. It is mostly cosmic horror, which you can see the um, influence of I named my cat a slur Lovecraft <laughs> a lot more. Um, let's see. I talked about him writing about how he thought sharks would be more scary if they were on land. Uh, Uzumaki, uh, specifically out of all of his other work, uh, deals with sort of the idea of obsession and how it can overpower literally everything else. In Uzumaki specifically, it's also a lot of making the mundane scary because mm-hmm. it's just this small town mm-hmm. that everyone is sort of very bored in. So when these spirals, these spirals which would usually be mundane because they're everywhere they're in our fingerprints they're what happens when water goes down a drain Mm -hmm. 
uh, they wouldn't have been even a footnote, but something happens where these spirals become the subject of obsession and fascination for the characters in Uzumaki. Mm -hmm. The spiral in the story itself can sort of be thought of as um, one's obsession with the reoccurring uh, mundanity of life. Mm -hmm. How one can be obsessed with day-to-day life to the point of insanity i know that this like that probably rings a lot more true now when we've been in quarantine for like a year and some change where there's not really much else going on and we have to be our own zookeepers and give ourselves our own enrichment Mm -hmm. or else you start obsessing over the very mundane and little things and the monotony of what's happening and I know that you, that's even harder for people who live alone currently. Mm-hmm. But I like Uzumaki. It's scary. I like the Slug Boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I read it um, because I had heard people mention it a lot. Um, and I think I read Amigara Fault because Tumblr was super into it. And then I was like, what else has this mm-hmm. guy done? So I went and read a fan translation of Uzumaki. And I read it sitting on... I read it on my laptop sitting in someone's dorm room and I just like shut everything off because the story is so fascinating that I had to sit there and read all of it in one go to find out what happened at the end. But yeah, uh, he really knows how to write a story that draws you in and does not let you go until you get to the end. Yeah, a part a part of that is actually the, um, the technical way that he sets up the manga mm-hmm. is it's called the the page turn and so what would be like a cutaway in a movie or a tv show where you like just see the person's face and see their reaction mm. he's doing the sort of same thing in a uh, the visual medium of of manga so you see like the awful thing and the the everything is tense and there's the suspense and everything's set up you're like what is happening and you turn the page and then you also see that awful slug boy that the <laughs> classmate was looking at mm-hmm. which is something he's perfected apparently um throughout his his entire work it's just building that suspense with the visual medium mm-hmm. is of manga is is very impressive mm-hmm. um in its own right and he's definitely one of the one of the best at it mm-hmm. if not the best currently I know that one of my favorite panels is from Tomie, where you turn it, and it's just this awful mangled body of Tomie with some other shit going on. And it's it's definitely like, oh, God. <laughs> Visual gut punch mm-hmm. to the face and the eyeballs. Also, uh, he may not be doing this consciously, but a lot of his work deals with the examination of sort of mankind's unconscious instincts towards self-destruction, which is called the death drive, which is a Freudian theory. But this plays a lot into the enigma of Amigara Fault when all of those people are climbing into the mountain because they just, they have to know what's in there. It was their hole. It was made for them, Mm -hmm. which is sort of leans into the theory of the death drive, which is expressed through behaviors as repetitive compulsions, aggression, and self-destructiveness. Which, not aggressive in the Enigma of Amigar Fault, but like the compulsion to go in that hole that was made for you is kind of horrifying. And the fact that Steven Universe, a children's (laughs) show, makes a joke about it is 
well well they don't show the other side like because the horror isn't so much people going into the hole as what happens when they come out the other side yeah that final panel has stuck with me for years Mm -hmm. after reading it uh where they just show the misshapen shape of the other side of the hole where it's it's no longer a recognizable human shape Mm -hmm. it's something else uh it's real (laughs) everyone should should go read Enigma of Amagara Fault if you don't want to read anything else of Junji Ito's. It's, it's honestly so eerie that it, it has stuck with me for years. Mm-hmm. So despite being a uh, such a well-known king of horror in Japan, there are actually a lot of things that he refuses to portray and depict in his works, mm. which I always respect a horror creative who has standards. <laughs> um... Because it's not something you find a lot in in the West, where a lot of stuff is not off limits in terms mm-hmm. of horror, uh, which honestly leads to a lot of horror being uh, like um, boring, <laughs> um, but a boring, repetitive, like jump scare for jump scare's sake, mm. or blood and guts for blood and guts' sake. There's, it's. When people don't have their own personal limits on, like, what they think is a good topic for horror, a lot of horror becomes weirdly cookie-cutter because then it's mm. just a game of trying to one-up each other. Yeah, like, who can make the most disgusting thing that'll shock people next? And not so much what will make, like, what will be interesting. It's not so much what's the best story to tell as what will have people leaving the theater telling their friends to go watch it because, oh, it's so gross when this and this happens. Yeah, compare, um... Human centipede uh, versus something which I am a big proponent of, which is that the first three Saw movies were actually good and were a closed storyline that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And yeah, it was gross. Yeah, it was awful. But there was a... For the first three Saw movies, there was a point to it Mm. instead of just a cash grab look at what's the next gross thing we can do when our movie comes out. Mm. Uh, whereas Human Centipede is just like, haha, wouldn't it be funny if everyone was, if these three people were just a one person, but what if their, what if their mouths touched their butts? <laughs> uh, it's a lot more horrifying than that. I like taking the piss out of Human Centipede because I think it's stupid, but the actual movie itself is not, the first human centipede, I should say, because there are multiple. Uh, the first human centipede itself is is not awful. It was an interesting concept. It was interestingly done, but mm-hmm. because of that one-upmanship of no-holds-barred Western horror, now it's just a drop in the bucket of everything else that's come out since. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just trying to one-up it, which sucks. It, I think it limits creativity, honestly. I mm-hmm. wish people would focus more on, like, the actual eeriness of true horror instead of just, like, oh, what if we do this jump scare with this spooky music? Ooh, that's scary. <laughs> I, like, I think that's part of the reason why I personally don't watch horror. One, because I'm a huge weenie, but also because <laughs> I I just don't do well with gore and jump scares. So yeah. um, I can't watch... I, w- I don't think I'd ever be able to watch something like Human Centipede, but maybe I'd watch The Exorcist eventually, or I watched Get Out. Um, the scariest I will go currently is Get Out, which wasn't even that 
it's that kind of eerie horror, not so much like jump scares, mm-hmm. gore horror, which I really liked once I got past being like watching from behind a pillow. Yeah, but see, Get Out is like the complete opposite skill of what I was just talking about. Yeah. When I first saw Get Out, I would literally not shut up about it. <laughs> it's so good though. <laughs> because it's so good and Jordan Peele manages to make the black experience in America resonate with make white people think about it <laughs> and why it's horrifying. Yeah. And resonate with um other other people of color who of course, have both the same and different experience as black people in America, but, mm-hmm. like, shit like getting beat up by the cops and, like, not calling the cops because they're gonna kill you. Um, like, it's more in- infrequent with other POC communities, but it still happens, and that's still stuff that's horrifying and resonates with us. So, like, sitting there and just feeling so viscerally uncomfortable mm-hmm. and immediately not trusting his fucking white girlfriend. <laughs> God, I love Get Out so much. I love a I love a people who make interesting <laughs> horror. Um, but bring it back around. Some of the things he, uh, Junji Ito specifically refuses not to portray in his work is illness or discriminatory issues in Japanese horror. So that's why you won't find, besides like obsessive compulsions, you won't mm. find. Sort of like, oh, this person's got the mental illness, so they're scary. Mm. Uh, in his work specifically, which is unfortunately, like, asylum horror is yeah. a big trope and theme in a lot of Western horror, specifically American. Because, ooh, the, the mental illness <laughs> is scary. Ooh. I'm sorry I have depression and probably ADD. So uh, spooky. So scary. Um... But I respect someone who refuses to not write about those things in his in his work. Mm-hmm. Um, he also refuses to tackle things that hit too close to real world horrific events, like for example, mm-hmm. the Holocaust and mm-hmm. other. Like he'll write about war stuff or be inspired by the horrors of war, but he won't directly like write about war crimes like mm-hmm. that uh, for shock value, which is I appreciate again. A, a horror creator with morals and standards. <laughs> uh, and also things like bullying, which he considers to be a tremendous societal problem. Mm-hmm. Like, hell yeah. I appreciate that. I will take bullying in little crumbs and little tastes. And, and usually, weirdly enough, not horror medium like Heathers and Mean Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, like, bullying is it's definitely a trope in Western horror, but it's not something that's as common anymore. Like, it's not like 2001 where you have like the nerdy friend and the hot friend or oh she's hot only when she takes off her glasses (laughs) that's not as widespread anymore but it exists in a lot of more historical media at this point I I might be wrong about this but I feel like it's more of a problem in Japan that has a um, like the culture is a lot less individualistic so deviating from the norm is a lot more is punished a lot more frequently Mm -hmm. like uh one of the uh threads in wonder egg priority which is airing right now is the consequences of bullying um and what happens to the people who deviate from the norm and i don't know how common it actually is i don't know if this is kind of like when 
uh, kids in anime hang out on the roof kind of thing where it's like it doesn't actually happen but mm-hmm. um that's definitely something that comes up a lot is the kids who get bullied for not being like everybody else in the or not or being different in a way that everyone else doesn't like yeah so i can understand why he wouldn't write about that when it's a more severe problem in japan yeah especially when you consider the rate of of unfortunately suicide in japan too mm-hmm. it makes sense that that's something that he culturally he would not choose to write about mm-hmm. um he also who this still hits a little too close to home uh he refuses to uh write about the uncanny ability of people all over the world to accept blanket lies from their leaders without questioning anything wow i can't relate to that at all can't That's relate weird. As, mm, can't relate. <laughs> oh, oof. That that one hits a little a little too real. I. It's a topic that I think is interesting to explore, mm-hmm. but there's there's just a fine line between exploring the phenomenon and like making fun of the tribalism it causes, mm-hmm. especially yeah. in America as a very very based towards the individual like yeah america give me my rights it's uh, i don't know that's something i could talk about for for hours and Mm -hmm. i don't want to on my and on this anime (laughs) podcast talking about junji ito um one thing he was was not a a hard no but he was reluctant to draw was sex scenes but he apparently recently broke that personal uh taboo while working on no longer human, which is a, a which is his manga adoption adaption of Osamu Dazai's novel of I think maybe the same name, um, which apparently created a small problem at home because his two daughters usually have free access to his body of work. Oh no! But he has not shown them no longer human. Uh, That's interesting that he draws horror manga and he's like, but you can't see the dicks. You can't see titties. <laughs> no titties in my house. Um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I I mean, I was exposed to like horror very young, so I, I relate to that. I'm like, yeah, no, it's fine. I turned out okay, I, I think. Um, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, <laughs> but like I, I turned out okay, I think. But yeah, I love that he's actually quoted as saying, there are sex scenes in that. I don't want them to think about their dad writing that, so I got to hide those. (laughs) (laughs) I love that his daughters, though, who if they were born in 2013, they're not older than like 10 right now. Like, they read his, they read their dad's horrifying body horror-based work. (laughs) I love it. It's very good. So... For the last thing that I have to talk about, I tried to find his impact on horror in Japan, and it was actually really hard to find anything about this for some reason. I've I went to like page ten of Google. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's when you know you're desperate. Yeah, trying to find stuff, phrasing it in different ways. Um, like he does have a clear influence on horror slash guru in Japan. But whatever it is, people in the West aren't writing about it. So I, it was really hard to find anything about this. Um, I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that, like, he 
like his stuff has only really become popular in the last 10 or so years because it hasn't been officially translated to English consistently. So there aren't as many people finding it unless you're like a super weeb, like the people who write Stupid Universe. Yeah. Or at least like those first couple of novels that have been translated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love to do like more research into actually finding out his impact on it, but I just, I couldn't find anything. I, I spent like two hours looking specifically. Um, I just couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so as far as like his influence and like how his popularity in Japan, um, Tomie has been adapted, uh, into, a movie series that turned 21 this year. Hmm. Um, it was adapted first in 1998. There was another one in 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2005, another one in 2005, 2007, and the last one was in 2011. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot, it's a lot of sequels. That's comparable to things like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th over here in the West. Uh, His work has also been adapted into an anime series, uh, the Junji Ito Collection, which is an anthology series about his works. Uh, It has 12 episodes. It premiered in 2018 and was accompanied by the release of two OVAs. Unfortunately, the anime adaption was not... It was a toss-up whether it was liked or not. Yeah, I had it on my list for that season, and I never watched it because it moved down my list because the reviews weren't great, which is disappointing. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Um, Junji Ito himself, whether being very diplomatic or a genuinely nice and polite man, (laughs) has not said anything awful about it Mm -hmm. um, and actually praised at least the director of the work uh, the director of the anime for respecting his his work and his vision and said wonderful things about the music and like the voice actress for Tomie as well who he was there for the auditions for mm-hmm. um, but as far as fans what they had to say about it uh, it, it was criticized for falling short to the original works partly due to apparently a lack of atmosphere everything felt very flat mm. And partly due to an inability to replicate Ito's incredibly detailed art style, which I think is a problem of uh, the anime having to be in color, whereas all of the manga is in black and white. Mm -hmm. And he does have that very intricate, like, very dotted, cross-hatched line style that's very intensive to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is a little hard to do if you're putting it on a a moving object. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, from what I remember of, like, the previews, the colors did seem a little washed out to me. It did seem a little lackluster. I still haven't watched it, so I can't give a genuine opinion on it. Mm-hmm. But it's on the list. I'm going to watch it at some point, And then I'll come back and be like, hey, this was actually okay. Or, hey, this was actually just as bad as people said it was. <laughs> uh, but again, uh, Ito himself has not said anything negative about the series as far as I could find. At least not in public. Yeah, at least not in public. And in interviews, he was very nice and polite and praised at least the director of the series. <laughs> uh, so take that as you will. Uh, Uzumaki got a live action adaptation in 2000. Mm-hmm. 
and is also getting an anime adaptation that was announced at 2019's Crunchyroll Expo. Uh, it will air in 2021 on Adult Swim's Toonami, which has come back. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it's a four-episode... So it's a mini... It, it, over here, it would be called a mini-series in the West, because it's only four episodes. Mm. Um, but it's going to premiere on Tsunami in, at some point in 2021. Weirdly enough, it's premiering in America before it's premiering in Japan. Hmm. So I don't know if that... Maybe that's because Crunchyroll is funding it and it's premiering on Tsunami Adult Swim. Yeah, I know um, Crunchyroll is, like, starting to work with more animation studios, like with um, Tower of God and, unfortunately, X-Arm. So hopefully Uzumaki God. isn't a... <laughs> hopefully Uzumaki is better. We'll fucking see. Um, I hope that it goes well because they're not like... It doesn't seem like they're unnecessarily stretching out the story or anything. They're focusing on the actual run of the manga by keeping it limited as, as a miniseries. Mm-hmm. So it's theorized that he had at least had a, a little influence in the... Juon slash Grudge series mm-hmm. because the original film is structured into six parts, each named after a victim of that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the victims are related or acquaintances, but each has their own unique story or interaction within the house that uh, Juon is set. They each have their unique interactions with the manifestation of Juon or other vengeful spirits of the home and their own eventual madness or death. And Junji Ito himself tends to jump around between various characters, sometimes completely unrelated, uh, depending on the length of his... of the length of the work. Um, And his narratives usually spin terrifying tales about ideas, which is a more postmodern approach to horror compared to monsters, Mm -hmm. which is an old modernist approach, which again ties into the fact that the scariest thing to him besides sharks is people mm-hmm. and the ideas of of what people can do to each other and do to, to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, Not to bring up Supernatural in the aftertimes, but some of the scariest episodes of Supernatural weren't the monster ones. It was when they figured out that it was humans doing the thing. It's always scarier to think that, like, your neighbor could be doing that mm-hmm. or, or you're cousin than it is to ever think of an imaginary monster. Mm-hmm. And Junji Ito's work specifically walks that fine line of like, oh, it's your family, it's your village, but after everyone is recognizably human, then they start the transformation into visually monsters, and that's really fucking scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really scary. Um, so he has a lot of body horror in his work, um, which is something... A lot of classic western horror has mm-hmm. i mean he's not the first to do it but he's probably why a lot of it has gotten more more influence and traction mm-hmm. in japan recently feel free to tell me if i'm wrong on that listeners because again <laughs> i i went to like page 10 of google i was trying so hard i want to know his impact on horror in japan and i couldn't find anything so instead We'll tell you about his impact on horror outside of Japan, because that was much easier to find information on. First off, we mentioned this before, the Enigma of Amigara Fault was an inspiration behind one of the episodes of Cartoon Network's Steven Universe, 
where they make a joke about it and one of the characters literally said says like oh look it's my hole (laughs) and then jumps into a person-shaped hole oh which if you're a kid you don't if you were a kid watching Cartoon Network and watching Steven Universe, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. But if you're like me and you've read Junji Ito and you're just like, what the <laughs> fuck was that? He's also had um, other impacts. Like Diablo 4's developer recently said uh, that Ito's work uh, was a significant inspiration for the game and some of the designs for like the enemies and the creatures. Mm-hmm. World of Horror by... Pans Staz with the Z at the end slash. Oh, it's a Polish name. I'm gonna be real bad at pronouncing this. Uh, but his name is Powell, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Kozminski, hopefully. Powell has created a game called World of Horror, which is a love letter to the cosmic horror work of Junji Ito, in his own words, uh, and the one-bit aesthetics of early Macintosh computers. Mm. Um, it's a point-and-click. Uh, armed with clues, spells, and your dwindling sanity, you'll investigate mysteries all over the city and realms beyond. This game, you can actually purchase it on Itch.io. I'm actually probably going to because it looked really amazing and it is completely inspired by Junji Ito. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, the article I got the information from it from was called World of Horror is Poland's Love Letter to Junji Ito. Mm. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I've seen um, um, YouTubers talk about it, um, especially... Like, the whole gaming side of YouTube. Um, there are a bunch of, yeah. like, playthroughs and stuff. Yeah, I followed um, World of Horror on, on Twitter for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then immediately, apparently, my brain forgot it was a thing <laughs> and that it had come out. Uh, but I'm excited and I'm, I'm definitely going to play it. Um, comparisons have been drawn between Tomie and the 2009 American black comedy film Jennifer's Body. Mm-hmm. Sort of because the same themes of like a beautiful girl um inspiring horrendous emotions in other people or committing horrible acts herself uh jennifer's body is about a demon takes possession of the titular jennifer who is played by megan fox and she starts actively like hunting and eating dudes uh (laughs) um and her you could tell this is you know, early, mid-2000s, because then her nerdy friend <laughs> learns what's happening and vows to put an end to the carnage. So that's where it sort of branches off from Tomie, mm-hmm. specifically. Because Tomie is about... Tomie doesn't have control over what's happening to her and doesn't necessarily, like, is not actively doing any of the awful things, uh, for the most part. Whereas Jennifer is actively eating dudes at her school. Yeah. But I can definitely I can definitely see the comparisons and see why see why it's a thing. Um, finally, probably the one that everyone if you if you enjoy Silent Hill as a game <laughs> series, you will know this one because I'm still mad about it. Because of PT. Uh, yeah, uh, Guillermo del Toro was cited on his official Twitter um, that Ito was gonna work on Silent Hills um, as a collaborator. We. We don't know to what extent, um, I mean, Ito has said specifically that uh, he and the directors had had lunch like twice, so nothing was officially set in stone. He never started work on doing any creature concepts or anything, but like, they wanted him on the game. Everything I hear about what could have been Silent Hills, like, I 
I'm again too much of a weenie to ever play these games myself but I remember someone mm-hmm. putting on the demo in their dorm room and we all sat there watching someone play through it it was the scariest shit I've ever seen in my life um uh-huh. and then afterwards when it got cancelled I was upset and then when I heard that Junji Ito was supposed to have something to do with it I was so mad yeah I've I've still never forgiven I have never forgot <laughs> Like, they fumbled the biggest bag. I miss her every day of my <laughs> life. <laughs> uh, Resident Evil and, uh, and Silent Hill are two of my favorite survival horror game series. And so ever since it got canceled, I'm just, I'm, I've been so crushed. I think about it all the time. It makes me so mad. Um, but luckily, despite uh, Konami's blunder, Kojima still had Del Toro and and. Ito cameo in Death Stranding as characters. <laughs> um, Del Toro's character, Dead Man, plays a much bigger part in this story and is is not voiced by Del, Del Toro because hmm. he is not an actor. Uh, he j- the character just looks like him. But the voice actor sounds like him, which is hmm. which threw me off when I was watching a playthrough of Death Stranding. Uh, and Dead Man has a lot bigger role in the game, which makes sense because they were supposed to, you know, do Silent Hills together. Mm-hmm. But Junji Ito's got like a like a little um, cameo appearance as one of the clients you can deliver packages to. <laughs> <laughs> and the first time I saw it, I was like, wait, <laughs> is that Junji fucking Ito? And I had to look it up and it was. And that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that feels um, like a very Ito cameo too. Like he wouldn't be a character. He'd just be like someone off in the background. <laughs> Yeah, it feels very in line for what we know of the man. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also, he's done a lot of stuff, like, in America and the West, too. Like, he went on a tour of the Winchester Mystery House. Oh, interesting. Uh, and apparently loved it. Um, there's a video of it on YouTube. I think in that same video, there's also a part where either his translator or his tour guide is teaching him how to do the whip and nene. <laughs> and it's my favorite thing. He's so bad. He doesn't want to do it because he's bad at dancing and has no rhythm, but he does it anyway. And it's my... I'll send you the picture so we can put it up on, like, the Instagram because I want to do... I want to do booklets for, like, every every episode if there's a visual component. And I I need people to see this picture of Junji Ito doing the whip. (laughs) It's my favorite thing. Um, But sort of... Sort of in conclusion, he's... A very well-known, well-loved, um, well-loved mangaka. Um, I personally love his work a whole lot. It has been a big influence on the the limited writing I still do, but a lot on the visual aspect of my job doing creature creation mm-hmm. and um, wounds and stuff uh, for horror movies and what I do in the LARPs that I run for, like, wound simulation and stuff. Um, he creates, like, very eerie, lasting horror that worms its way into your brain and sort of grabs on and doesn't let go. Mm-hmm. Like, I still visually can see a lot of the final panels of a lot of his work in my brain, even though I haven't read them in in years, mm-hmm. like since middle school, like since two thousand and six, um, I have not reread any of of his work, and I could st- I can still clearly visualize the ending of 
the Enigma of Amagarafal. I can visualize certain panels in Uzumaki. I can mm-hmm. visualize certain panels from Tomie. It's just, he has such a talent for creating work that just sticks with you, and I don't know how he does it, but it, it's a, he's a very talented man. Yep. I've talked about Jujito for for hour and a half. <laughs> I hope this is good content in any kind of way. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was interesting, because all I know about the guy is, I mean, there isn't a whole lot of information, but knowing about his influences and both what influenced him and what he has influenced and his kind of growing popularity in the West is cool to learn about, because I didn't know that stuff, so. Yeah, he's actually gotten a couple of re-releases. Um, I know there was a art book that was just released that is just an art book I believe um, and I know Tomie got a re-release with a complete deluxe edition of all of the collected Tomie novels hmm. Yo got a 2-in-1 deluxe edition um, Uzumaki got a 3-in-1 deluxe edition so all of his most popular work is getting re-released in America at least um, yeah Twisted Visions is the uh is the art book specifically, mm-hmm. which I want deeply. It looks so good. So if people want to get um, to read any of his stuff, at least in the U.S., where could they go? Um, unfortunately, you got to buy most of it. Uh, viz.com may have some. Unfortunately for a lot of it, you're going to have to either find accurate fan translations mm-hmm. or buy it yourself. Um, just because a lot of it is only now being officially brought over to the to the west Mm -hmm. um i would i would honestly buy it because it's because it's good shit (laughs) but yeah from what i found it's a lot of it is um you just gotta read it online you gotta read scans and Mm -hmm. translations which shucks because i i hate to i hate to promote that when there are like actual legal ways to read it that also support the artist Mm -hmm. but you know, if something's not available, there there's only so much you can do. Yeah. But he's got all those dudes collections coming out, so you should you should buy those cuz they're good. <laughs> I'm going to probably buy them after this episode's over. <laughs> uh but yeah, as far as as far as his work goes, um if body horror is not your thing, I would definitely read like his short story The Human Chair or like the Enigma of Amigara Fault. Uh, those are like sort of some of the least body horror centric ones that I can think off the top of my head that actually have English translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you don't mind body horror, uh, go ahead and read Uzumaki. Go ha- go ahead and read Gyo. Go ahead and please read Tomie. Love Tomie so much. Oh, also if you don't if you don't like body horror, go read Junji Ito's Cat Diary because that's <laughs> a good time. And combines his visually unsetting style with, like, cats and his adorable wife. Mm-hmm. So that one's also a very good one to read. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's all I got. That was seven pages of research on Jujito. I haven't done I haven't done that much since high school. <laughs> it's so fun, though, when you find a topic that's super interesting and then you just end up with, like, a whole essay by accident. Yeah, it was very good. Um... I can't wait to to actually do the research into the history of Western animation and Japan's influence on it, which is going to be literally a three or four part <laughs> series because there's just so fucking much. That's oh, gonna be so fun. Though. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. So, 
have you finished any series? Have you started any new ones? What's your what's your watch schedule look like? Oh, uh, well, it still has like 14 shows on it. Um <laughs> but I did <laughs> I did finish Nana. Um I was like emotionally distraught afterwards because I got so invested in the characters and we're not getting any more of that story anytime soon. Um, yeah, the the no closure is rough. Oh god, I'm so upset. Um, but to plug that hole, I started watching Fukijen no Mononokian, the Morose Mononokian, um, which aired 2016. It's a a story about a kid who, on his first day, super excited for his first day of high school, um, but ends up accidentally picking up a yokai who drains him of his energy. So he spends the whole first week of high school in the nurse's office until he can find someone to oh. exercise it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah. And the other one is Midnight Occult Civil Servants. Um, about a guy who starts his first day of work in a government office, and it turns out they're the kind of not secret, um, like, yokai division. So they work the night shifts and pretty much are, like, the beat cops, but for yokai. So if there's, like, a, like a, a noise complaint and it's yokai, they're the ones who get called out. Oh my god. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah. I may actually pick that one up. That sounds amazing. I love yokai. Um, And then, yeah, and then I'm just watching 14 other shows that are currently airing. Wonderful. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm thinking about picking up a rewatch of the OG 90s Sailor Moon. Mm. Um, Did a lot of I I got distracted and I did do a couple of like reads of articles and stuff about it. I'm like, "Hmm, I do want to talk about Sailor Moon because I do love Sailor Moon. Do I want to watch the original DIC dub for nostalgia <laughs> factor, or do I want to watch the the all new, brand new one with all of the missing episodes that were never brought over to America in the nineties? Um, I'll probably watch the new one because it's missing. It's not missing anything, mm-hmm. but I'll watch one or two of the DIC episodes for nostalgia's sake. Because God, <laughs> the voice actress for Sailor Moon in the original nineties dub in America is just iconic. I can. <laughs> I can hear her voice even now in my head. I can just imagine it. I'm like, that's, that's Serena. (laughs) Um, Because of course, kids in America wouldn't know how to pronounce a Japanese girl's name. So we have to rename all of them. Um, Aside from Sailor Moon, are you watching anything else? Uh, Season two Beastars, baby. I gave up on waiting. I will watch it now. (laughs) I want to see the furries. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to start that tonight or tomorrow, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Maybe a rewatch of Castlevania, even though that's not technically anime. Do we want to get into the technicalities of what is and isn't anime? I mean, we are going to do an episode about that, so. But not yet. Not yet. (laughs) No, today I just talked for an hour and a half about Junji (laughs) Ito. Hopefully, it literally was interesting in any way, shape, or form <laughs> to anyone who's not Suzanne. <laughs> that was cool. Um, yeah, so uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Weebs in a Trench and email us at Weebs in a Trench at gmail.com. 
our intro is Our Way by Vitney, and the music you're listening to right now is Chocolate Sunglasses by Drunken Farmer Band. And I'm Madison. And I'm Suzanne. And thank you for listening. Uh, We still need an outro, so once again, uh, good night. (laughs) 